Hello, and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where obviously, if you really loved your hosts, you'd be able to recognize them even after a long absence, right? Anyway, I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And boy, I sure hope this isn't somebody's first episode. actually wondering the other day if people could tell us apart you know i wonder i feel like we definitely have white woman voice both of us <laughs> yes it's probably like any new podcast you start where like you really can't and then eventually at some point you can oh it took me so, like a good three or four weeks before i could tell the mcelroys apart three or four weeks i i swear to god it took me like six months <laughs> i always i i knew griffin right away i could figure out griffin I it took me six months before I could reliably tell Justin and Travis apart. They're harder. Uh, Clint is pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, Clint's yeah, Clint's Clint. Um, I've actually been reading a graphic novel, the Adventure Zone one, the new one, the Eleventh uh, uh, Hour. They're all so good. I got I need to like go through and I always get like so excited when a new one comes out and I like devour it in a day and then I, like it goes on my bookshelf and it. Just, I've been I slowly reading it, it since Christmas. <laughs> slowly reading it i wanted to make it last i i admire your willpower i cannot do that i just like i read it in one sitting essentially (laughs) i I read right before i go to sleep so it's less of a not wanting to read more and more of a i guess seepy so seepy reading makes me sleepy god i tried reading hp lovecraft the other day and like after two paragraphs was like am i stupid like probably (laughs) am i actually dumb Maybe. Why are these words so big? Uh, speaking of old stuff. He's old. <laughs> what are we talking about today? You're Explain asking to the me people. questions. <laughs> um, today's episode, uh, we are going to be covering four cases of missing children who were miraculously found. Or were they? Uh, like that Angelina Jolie movie, right? Yeah. We're specifically going to be talking about that Angelina Jolie oh, movie. Oh, dope. Yes. I've never seen it. <laughs> Well, spoiler alert for that movie, uh, and also for all of the cases, uh, don't get your hopes up for a lot of happy endings here. That's all I'm going to say. I do promise at least one mostly happy ending. So before we start, going to actually do my sources while I'm thinking about it. I like how Um, you say I'm actually going to do my sources when you're the one, like, of the two of us, the one who reliably (laughs) cites her sources. Because I'm always very paranoid, I will forget. (laughs) So, thank you to Wikipedia, This American Life, HistoricMysteries.com, CrimeMuseum.org, The Los Angeles Times, The Chicago Sun-Times, and the BBC. Very reliable, like, academic sources. Yes, CrimeMuseum.org, very academic. Yeah. Let me tell you. (laughs) So, uh, the first case we're going to cover is that of Bobby Dunbar. Bobby Dunbar. That, that's Bobby the point of my script, right? Dunbar. <laughs> I'm never going to be Paul Rudd. And I need you guys <laughs> to accept that. And I also know that I definitely did this, what, like five or six, seven years ago when we like shittily touched on this case in a previous episode. Yeah, I, 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 I looked back in the list. Was it like the missing persons episode? I think so. But it was like episode five or something. It was really yeah. early. It, it, we didn't know what we were doing. And it's kind of like how I covered Jeff. Um, Jeff. Uh, in Jeff? <laughs> Jeff. Dahmer? Yes, Jeff Dahmer. Um, no, Jeff the Talking Mongoose. 
that Jeff, oh. Jeff, uh, in the Poltergeist episode, but we circle back right. around because he's too good and, and deserved better than than uh, what I did for him in that bathtub in my old apartment. Yeah. And also, like, I haven't gotten to talk about Bobby Dunbar yet. And- <laughs> You're the one who sent me the article. <laughs> yeah, it's like, isn't that the only thing that matters? Um, and also just like, it's it's a very kind of like quintessential a case in this genre, if you will, of true crime. Um, so we got to talk about Bobby Dunbar. Uh, so yes, for starters, can't not mention this case without a huge shout out to This American Life, as mentioned in their episode, The Ghost of Bobby Dunbar, uh, which originally aired in March 2008. It's where I got a lot of my information. It's apparently where Wikipedia got a lot of its information. <laughs> where Emily got a lot of her information back in the day. Uh, uh it's it's also really just a great hour of radio, so I would encourage you all to go and listen to that. Uh, it's on their website, so you can go listen to it for free anytime. It's very, very good, so please go listen. Anyway, Bobby. Yes. Are you, are you going to say it? or I, I, I thought I got it out of the way. I didn't want people to <laughs> Did turn on me. you get it me. out of your system? Okay. <laughs> I mean, there are only uh, so many ways you could say it, but... <laughs> Bobby Dunbar. I don't even uh, Bo- remember. Oh, Bobby Newport was the one from Parks Bobby and Rec. Bobby Newport. I have to think <laughs> about it too for a minute. I don't know if you youngins remember Parks and Rec, that old TV show. Don't do this to me right now. <laughs> Bobby was born Robert Clarence Dunbar on May 23rd, 1908, which I mentioned specifically um, because it's exactly 80 years before I was born. Um, so am I the reincarnation of Bobby Dunbar? You can't prove I'm not. Uh, uh, <sighs> I mean, you're not <laughs> wrong, but you're also, you're not incorrect, but you're wrong. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I don't need to think in, about that right now. <laughs> uh, in August 1912, four-year-old Bobby disappeared while on a family fishing trip to Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. A search was launched, but no sign of Bobby was ever found, uh, and his parents, Leslie and Percy, were forced to return to their home in Opelousa, Louisiana, without their oldest son. Kind of sucks uh, then, that he was the oldest. Yeah. That's the one the parents love the most, I hear. Their eldest boy. <laughs> yeah, they loved him the most. <laughs> then eight months after Bobby went missing in April 1913, authorities became aware of a man named William Cantwell Walters, a traveling repairman who had been working his way through the state of Mississippi with a young boy who looked, according to some, suspiciously like little Bobby Dunbar. I'm going to go ahead and say, on the record, all four-year-old boys look the same. This is correct. Well, no, that's not true. You've got brunette four-year-old boys, and you've got blonde four-year-old boys. All blonde four-year-old boys look the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, it's just true. It is true. When questioned, Walters claimed the boy, I'm just thinking about all my nephews, all blonde, and how when I babysit, I have a tendency to like call them all by each other's names, even though they're all separate ages and very different looking, but like I will call them all by each other's names. No, my nephews both look the fucking same. It's fine. Like, <laughs> it happens. They'll grow out of it. When questioned, Walters claimed the boy was Bruce Anderson and that his mother had willingly sent him along with Walters. Uh, the police did not buy this and that the Dun- and the Dunbars were called to Mississippi to settle the matter. Because, after all, if anyone could confirm if the boy was Bobby or not, it was his parents, right? Well. <laughs> so, here's where the story gets a little fuzzy. There are conflicting newspaper reports on how Leslie Dunbar, his mother, and the boy initially reacted to each other. Uh, So one story reads, mother faints at sight of kidnapped child. When mother reached the house where the boy was being kept, he was asleep. Mrs. Dunbar made a careful examination of the lad without awakening him and was standing over the bed a few hours later when the child opened his eyes. 
The boy recognized his mother instantly. Mother, he cried as he reached up and stretched out his arms to her. The mother convulsively embraced the boy and then fainted. (laughs) Get it together, woman. Another paper read, Mrs. Dunbar, not positive, lad is her missing boy. When they reached the home, the child was asleep at the time. When awakened, it began to cry. Mrs. Dunbar looked in the, it, yeah, direct quote from the paper, apparently. Mrs. Dunbar looked in the dim light of a smoky oil lamp and then fell back with a gasp. I do not know. I am not quite sure, faltered Mrs. Dunbar. Uh, So, again, like, who knows what exactly happened? We don't have, no one was in the room. Uh, But it does seem like neither Percy nor Leslie seemed quite sure that the boy was their son or not. Um, Which I think probably sounds crazy to, like, modern day parents that they wouldn't just know. But also, like, it's 1912. You haven't seen your kid for eight months. And you don't have, like, 800 pictures of him in your camera roll. Yeah, you probably have like a picture that you spent a year saving Maybe. Yeah, maybe if you're lucky. Um, And then I also like, I don't really think you can like discount the psychological effect of wanting it to be your child. Oh, yeah. Like that, that's got to mess with your head. Um, Especially like if you go in and like maybe deep down, you know, it isn't, but you want it to be so badly that you can easily talk yourself into it, that sort of thing. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, as it was, the couple came back the next day, and after giving the boy a bath, Leslie was able to identify some specific moles and scars and declared, now with much more certainty, that it was her son Bobby after all. So, I just, it, it just reads weird that it's like, after she gave him a bath. All right. The funny, I'll mention this again later, but <laughs> the number of times in the story, it's just like, we don't know how to identify this boy, so let's get him completely undressed. <laughs> It's easier to identify a nude boy. Um, I just find it weird that she's like, ah, yes, this mole, but doesn't like recognize his face. Like, I don't know if I could identify myself from <laughs> moles and scars. That's a very interesting observation, Emily. About like me as a person or just like no, the story? Just, it's an interesting observation. And please keep that in mind for maybe later in the story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Glad I'm on to something. So the Dunbars returned to Opelousas with their son with their son to much fanfare, including a literal parade. Uh, but their joyful homecoming was cut short when Julia Anderson reappeared. So she confirmed Walter's story, or at least most of it, uh, stating that the boy was indeed her son, Bruce, uh, and that she had sent him with Walters in February 1912, long before Bobby's disappearance. Um, according to Julia, this was not supposed to be permanent. It was supposed to be a two-day trip while Walters visited some family. What is her relation to this man? So she worked for his family. She was a field hand. Um, okay. And Walters, um, he claimed that he you know, he just wanted to look out for Bruce. Julia was having a hard time financially. She was struggling to get back on her feet. And so he was going to take the boy, you know, let her get, get her life in order. And then he would bring the boy back. You know, his family could have just paid her more. You think maybe, I don't know if he was the one employing her directly. I think she was maybe employed by relatives of his. I don't know exactly what the relationship was. Man, we were just really loose with our kids back in the day. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just kids all over the place, man. (laughs) (laughs) Julia traveled from her home in North Carolina all the way to Opelousas, where after an overnight train ride, keep that in mind, uh, she was presented with five different boys. (laughs) Why are they making this so hard for this woman? (laughs) Look at all these boys. All their lineup of boys. Yeah, uh, she. They brought them in all at different times. So you hear, okay. Look at all these boys. Pick out your son. 
Uh, when presented with the boy that the Dunbars were claiming as Bobby, he showed no signs of recognition that Julia was his mother, even when she offered him an orange. Uh, and Julia, too, seemed to be a little unsure. She asked the lawyers in the room if this was the child who had been recovered, but no one answered her. Probably trying to stay neutral, I guess. But, uh, yeah, so she- they, they they didn't do a lineup of boys for the other family. They weren't, like, pick yeah, this one? Mm-hmm. No, just take him home. Uh, So she wavered, saying she just didn't know. Like the Dunmars, she was allowed to return again the next day. (laughs) Again, upon being allowed to undress the boy. (laughs) He probably doesn't want to go with any of these people. She did express more certainty that he was, in fact, her son. So... I don't I don't know why that is the kicker every time, but it's been a year since she <laughs> sent her son to to like go with this dude, right? Yeah, over a year. Okay. And he was four when he went away. Yeah. Four year olds don't know yeah. shit. Of course he's not gonna recognize her. He's not gonna remember her. And also remember they threw him a literal parade when they brought yeah, him. Yeah, they've to this been town. like, these are your parents. Like these are like he probably believes that if it wasn't yeah like already true. I gotta wonder like you have this poor boy who's this probably had boy. a pretty tough life who you know his mother is is probably trying her best but she can't buy him a lot of toys she's probably working all the time because she's got to support him and feed him uh, and then he is living this weird life with this piano repairman guy and traveling <laughs> around in this traveling cart and then you get picked up by this couple who I don't think they were necessarily wealthy, but they were definitely more well-off than Julia Anderson was. You, They bring you to this town. They throw you a parade. You're living in this nice house. They're better than a house than you've ever lived in before. And then your mother shows up again and wants to take you back. And how are you going to react to that? At four years old, how do you how do you even process all that in your head? <laughs> At this point, I think the traveling piano repair van should have him. <laughs> give, give him to Walters, yes. So, so despite... Julia's claim that this was indeed her son, Bruce. Uh, it was too late in the public's eye. The newspapers had already gotten wind of her initial uncertainty the day before. And, you know, <gasps> coupled with completely predictable moral judgment over the fact that she was poor and unmarried, her claims completely dismissed. She had no lawyer. She had no money. There was no one in Louisiana Louisiana on her side. So she was forced to return to North Carolina alone. The boy remained in Opelousas and grew up as Bobby Dunbar. Well, I, um, hmm. nope, that's going to make me sound like an asshole. At least she doesn't have to worry about him anymore. Yeah. Uh, she didn't entirely, she doesn't disappear entirely from the story. So like she did return to Louisiana again later uh, when they did the kidnapping trial of William Walters, the piano repairman, um, oh my testifying God. to his innocence and asserting again that the boy he had been found with was her son, Bruce, and not Bobby Dunbar. Therefore, he didn't kidnap him. <laughs> Um, and actually backing her up was the entire town, apparently, of Poplarville, Mississippi, uh, where William Walters and the boy had spent a fair amount of time during their travels. Um, so a number of people there asserted uh, that they had seen the two together before Bobby Dunbar had gone missing. So he had been with Walters since February, and I don't think Bobby went missing until April. Well, are they just not using logic like this woman gave her son to this man to hang out for a while? They found this child with the man who notably had taken a child. <laughs> and they're but like, Emily, she's poor and unmarried. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. So no one, yeah, no one, again, even the entire town of Poplarville, Mississippi, no one was listening to them either. Uh, the court determined, no, this this kid is Bobby Dunbar. The, the <sighs> Dunbars say he's their son. Bobby Dunbar's dead. You kidnapped dead. him. <laughs> 
Yeah. And Walters was convicted of kidnapping in 1914. He served two years before his case was overturned on appeal. Uh, in the state Supreme Court ordered a retrial, um, but prosecutors decided the first trial had cost the town too much money and decided to drop the case. So Walters Good. was released. <laughs> so, I mean, silver linings. He didn't totally get his life ruined by this sham of a kidnapping trial i don't know i'd say two years in a louisiana jail in the 19 what tens probably ruin your fucking life it it probably wasn't fun but he did uh i didn't really write a whole lot about him after this but he he went on to have like a normal life he got married he had kids oh good he did okay so he turned out all right julia too um, after the trial, she settled in Poplarville, actually Mississippi, just a few hundred miles from Opelousa, uh, where she eventually married and had seven more children. Jesus, Julia. <laughs> yeah. She became a devout Christian, helped found a church, uh, and served her community as a nurse and a midwife. Um, by all accounts, she lived a very happy life, um, though her descendants have shared that she spoke often of Bruce, uh, and that their family always considered him as being kidnapped by the Dunbars. They considered him a missing member of their family. Because it fucking sounds like the Dunbars kidnapped <laughs> their son. Yeah. Uh, and Julia died on February 1st, 1940. Uh, so at least on one occasion, sometime in the mid-40s, a couple of Julia's children claimed that Bobby Dunbar himself, uh, well, allegedly, uh, stopped by and visited them in Poplarville. Um, Bobby's son, Gerald, has a similar story where, as the family was passing through the town on the way home from a vacation, Bobby pointed out the window and said, those are the people that ca- they came to pick me up from. Of course, he was, you know, he was a dad in the 1940s, and that apparently was all he ever said about that. <laughs> Do we have, like, DNA or anything? Just- We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, so if Bobby ever questioned his identity, he never really pressed the matter again. This he wasn't was the generation baby. where he, yeah, you know, and this wasn't the generation where you asked those kind of questions. Uh, he had four children of his own and died in 1966. Um, but of course, our story does not end there. Of course, not. in 1999, Margaret Dunbar Cutright uh, was handed a scrapbook by her father, Bob Dunbar Jr. It had belonged to her great grandmother, Leslie. And was filled with photographs and letters and newspaper clippings all about Bobby's kidnapping. So this had, you know, the whole family grew up hearing the story of their grandfather's kidnapping as it was told to them. Uh, so her father thought, oh, this will be a fun project for you. Her brother had just died in a plane crash. So she was kind of, I think, struggling a little bit and needed like something to take her mind off of things. Um, and boy, this really took her mind off of things because it turned into a full years long investigation. She just, really went down that rabbit hole. Um, She had spent her whole life yeah, (laughs) enamored with this story. So she like started pouring through newspaper accounts. She went to Mississippi and started interviewing Julie Anderson's children. Um, But what really kind of like started shifting her thinking was she got her hands on the defense file. So 400 pages of notes and evidence that had been presented by Walter's defense attorneys as part of his kidnapping trial in his appeal. So it was like a big mess. It was like notes kept by lawyers in like 1914. Oh, God. You can imagine just what a mess it was. So she began to transcribe it. She's typing up handwritten notes. She's putting it in chronological order. She's trying to keep it organized and trying to like just get it into a place where it's you can actually make it coherent. Um, And by this point, she had already started to have some of her doubts um, on the case, like hearing actually you're reading some of the newspaper accounts and hearing more of the background that isn't just like your grandpa was kidnapped by this traveling repairman sort of thing. Also being a woman in, you know, 1999 who, who understands that maybe there were some uh, biases. Yeah. 
yeah, coming from a different modern perspective. Um, so towards the end of this file she's transcribing, she comes across this anonymous letter written to Walter's attorneys and signed simply a Christian woman. And so, <laughs> dear sir, the letter says, in view of human justice to Julie Anderson and mothers, I am prompted to write to you. I sincerely believe the Dunbars have Bruce Anderson and not their boy. The identity of this woman isn't known. It doesn't actually matter. I don't think like her relation to this case is less relevant than the content of the letter itself. Like yeah. She has no more insight than what she's read in the papers, but she's apparently followed this whole thing very closely. So she goes point by point through her argument, laying out the case for why the Dunbars have the wrong child. Things like, why is Julia judged more harshly for being uncertain? Unless he also wasn't actually all that certain about the child's identity at first. She also brings up this point of Leslie can't recognize this kid's face, but she recognizes all his moles and scars. Huh, that's weird. Did I go back in time and <laughs> and write this letter? Are you the reincarnation of a Christian woman? No. You can't prove that you're not. <laughs> oh, I can. <laughs> that That I can pretty solidly prove. So Margaret's reading all this. She's reading this letter, these point by point. This woman is like the true crime blogger of her day. And she's like, oh, my God, this woman is absolutely right. This like this. My grandpa is not Bobby Dunbar. Still her grandpa, though. So like that's cool. Uh, So she starts thinking about a DNA test. Like this idea has already kind of been floating around the Dunbar family. But there's sort of this unspoken agreement that they wouldn't do it unless all of Bobby's four children agree to it, which, you know, that seems fair. This is a big life-altering decision. You can't really go making for everybody. Um, But then a reporter from the Associated Press gets wind of Margaret's research. And so he reaches out to her father to ask if he'd consent to do a DNA test. And Bob, having just been in the hospital undergoing treatment for congestive heart failure, he's having, you know, some big feelings about the whole thing, some big thoughts. And he decides he does want to go through with it. Oh, yeah, Bob. So they take a DNA sample from Bob and a sample from one of his cousins, the son of Bobby's brother, Alonzo, the least favorite child, apparently. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even know there were other children involved. God, can you Um, imagine being like the middle child of the Dunbar family? My God. Especially, yeah. Oh, God. You never lived that down. Well, no Um, one would ever give a shit. (laughs) No. You are second fiddle the rest of your life. Good luck, kid. Uh, so initially the plan had been, you know, we're going to do this DNA test, but we're going to keep all the results sealed until, you know, we have a talk with all of the siblings and we all, you know, come to an agreement to open them. Um, but then Margaret, one day she like called the lab, I think just to kind of like check on the status. Like, did you receive the test? Like, where is it at? Like, have you like tested it yet? And then like the laboratory assistant who answered her call apparently didn't understand the significance of it. And she's just like, oh yeah, we got it. It wasn't a match. Like, oh, (laughs) okay. Wow. Okay. Uh, Uh, So Margaret's investigation, as you can imagine, has not been well received by every member of the family. I don't understand why. I think I think it's a matter of their great grandma was a fucking like like they I guess she wasn't a liar, but like not necessarily that. I think it's just like some people don't like to rock the boat. Some people don't want to have to question your identity. And but they I, don't want to have to wrestle with that. Like if you, you know, we are a member of the Dunbar. They, I think they've essentially like they viewed themselves. We are Dunbars. We are a member of the Dunbar family. They don't want to have to reckon with the fact that, you know, 
biologically they might be. And I think some people see that and go like, okay, we aren't biologically related, but obviously family means more than that. And that isn't what's really important. We are still Dunbar's even though we aren't genetically related. And some people I think have a harder time with that. I'm probably, I would be one of the former, but not everybody thinks that same way. Yeah, I guess I, I mean, it's not that I don't care, but like if I found out my, like my grandpa wasn't actually a Coleman, it's like, okay, like that's still like who, you know, he's still my, my grandpa. Like it literally does not change anything except it answers a question and maybe makes another family feel validated. Like Mm -hmm. Julia was right. Yeah. I think there is an aspect, too, of the fact that it was handled so publicly that they did this test at the request of a reporter, that the results were, you know, published publicly, that there were, you know, this was, it wasn't just that they did this DNA test and then they had to reckon with it as a family. It was published in newspapers. Like, there was a This American Life episode about this. And, you know, some of the family is willing to talk about it. And some of it are like, this is our business and we don't want people talking about our business. I think there's that aspect of it, too, that has, you know, soured some people on it, which is reasonable, I think. So, yeah, not everything has to be everybody's business. Yeah. Like we weren't owed Um, answers. I mean, Julia's family was definitely owed answers. Yeah. Um, And I will say happily, Julia's family, Julia Anderson's family, like they're just like thrilled with the whole thing. They have welcomed their new relatives with open arms. They're, they, yeah, they do see it as, you know, validation. Like Julia was right. And we always knew she was right. And this finally, and they deserve that. Yeah. Um, and William Walter's descendants too considered it a very long overdue exoneration. So there are positive things, clearly, obviously, um, that I think do deserve to be public. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that leaves us for um that leaves us with the real Bobby Dunbar. Uh it's unfortunately doubtful we'll ever really know what happened to him. Margaret suspects he probably fell into the lake during that fateful fishing trip and yeah. was eaten by an alligator. Oh, I wouldn't have gone that far, but that actually sounds probably. Um, yeah. So that's kind of a weird note to end this one on, but that's kind of the last thing, the the last note I've got on on poor little Bobby Dunbar. Bobby Dunbar. Thanks. Thanks for bringing us back with that. <laughs> Just had to break the tension. <laughs> the story still ended with a dead boy, Sarah. Well, Emily, I hate to break it to you, but most of these stories do end with dead children. <laughs> Oh, no, no. It's kind of like, oh, God, I think it was an afternoon, uh, bo- a boo-ha-ha episode where we were like, hey, and these stories are depressing. I'm like, by its nature, all of these stories <laughs> involve at least one dead person. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. Even when like we get fun, cool things like, wow, you get to learn about a whole new side of your family you never knew about. It's also, oh, also a small boy died. <laughs> well. This one's not going to get any better. Our second case is that of poor little Pauline Picard. Oh, boy. Uh, There's not a lot of information on Pauline, uh, save for a lot of contemporary French reports. And then like one New York Times article from 1922 that kind of sums up the whole thing. Oh, it's Uh, French. Yeah, it's a French story. Uh, And then like all the blogs and podcasts are kind of just citing this one New York Times article because no one reads French, including myself. So here we go. I've done my best. I don't know if Sadie reads like fluent French, but she might have been some help. We should get Sadie involved in some French translation. (laughs) Dance, monkey! So Pauline Picard grew up on her family's farm near the French village of Gosaladou, 
along with her father, Francois, her mother, Marianne, and her eight siblings, because it's 1922. And you're on a farm, so you got to you gotta get a lot of kids. You got to make the workforce. Yeah. Uh, Gossaladou is in the Brittany region of France. And at that time, only Francois could actually speak French. So the rest of the family only spoke Breton, which is a Celtic language that's local to the region. So very, very rural France. That's niche as fuck. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So on April 6th, 1922, when Pauline was just two years old, she disappeared from her family farm while playing outdoors. Because this is 1922 and you just... Send your two-year-old child outdoors to play unsupervised. This is not me blaming the parents. I'm just like, this is what we did in 1922. After this story, uh, after the story, there's a passage from a, a book about the Donner Party that I want to read to you that I think fits in with this. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll we'll come around to that after <laughs> we talk about I Pauline. Cannot wait to hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once it was discovered she was missing, her parents immediately enlisted the help of police. So a search began immediately, aided by local volunteers, but no trace of Pauline was found. As the weeks passed, most began to theorize that the young girl had been killed by a boar or perhaps kidnapped by Romani. Not because that was a thing that actually happened, but because that was that era's version of, you know, sex trafficking, only more overtly racist. Yeah, my uh, family is actually part Romani, so. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yep. Uh a local woman reported seeing two people loitering near the farm and watching the girl, but could only describe them as, quote, foreigners. Ugh. Uh, the police did have one suspect, a traveling salesman named Christophe Caramon. We have got to stand up for our traveling salesman and piano repairman. <laughs> Caramon occasionally worked as a farm man for the Picards, uh, and he was arrested as he had visited the farm that day and had previously been in prison for rape. Um, okay. No, that actually, that. yep. Um, okay. But there, there was nothing else tying him to Pauline's disappearance other than he'd been to prison once and also had been near the farm. Um, but they did keep him in prison until Francois finally testified that Caramon was actually nowhere near where Pauline had last been seen. Good. <laughs> so great. Um, of course, by then, uh, there was another more intriguing development casting doubt on Caramon's guilt. On May 6th, just a month after Pauline's disappearance, the Picards were notified that they believed Pauline had been found in Cherbourg, a full 250 miles away from their village. Yeah, seems unlikely. Unless she got picked up by like a big bird. Yes, definitely. It was the big bird. You know what? I did not hear enough talk about big birds in when people talk about theories in this case. Yeah, the kids just got picked up by big birds and were mm-hmm. dropped hundreds of miles away. Yeah, totally makes sense. Unharmed. Uh, so details, of course, are hazy, but the girl had either been abandoned at a hospital or, again, been found in the company of, quote, a mysterious woman dressed in rags. Man, we're just really going to blame the Romani for all this shit, aren't we? Yeah. The problem with, like, every detail in this case is that everything we know comes from, like, French newspapers in 1922. So. And we all know the French are full of shit. I mean, newspapers were full of shit. (laughs) No, it was newspapers in general. We didn't know how to report back then. Um, So a photo was shown to Marianne, who immediately exclaimed, it really is my daughter, my poor little Pauline, except with a French accent. Uh, The Picards boarded a train to Cherbourg. Uh, Fun fact, it was their first time on a train, which I'm sure was fun for them. Uh, And on their arrival, they immediately went to the hospital. On seeing the girl, they expressed no doubt she was their daughter, uh, though they were confused why she wouldn't speak or why she didn't seem to recognize them. Um, They spoke to her, but she didn't seem to understand Breton. Uh, And the few items that had been found with her were completely unfamiliar. 
But uh, so as time passed, the Picard's uncertainty began to grow, but they found reasons to explain it away. You know, she was scared. She was traumatized. Maybe she had amnesia. She was too. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, maybe she had been abused by her kidnapper. She was repressing memories, that sort of, you know, thing. Uh, doctors believe, you know, take her home. She'll get better. <laughs> so. Take her further away from her actual family. Yep. So the Picards boarded the train once again, and they went back to their village with this mute little girl. And they're like, well, got our daughter back. Back to normal. Uh, so once home, the girl remained mute for some time, though all her siblings seemed to recognize her just fine. Um, it's claimed, again, claimed that she cried in fear when she returned to the site of her supposed abduction. Um, but then as the days passed, you know, she started to speak a little bit of Breton again. She started to open up, acting normal. So everything okay. was fine. Uh, there was a strange incident about a week after her return where a local farmer, um, apparently convinced that Pauline was really back, stopped by the Bacard residence to see the lost girl for himself. Upon seeing her, he exclaimed, God help me, I'm guilty, before running off laughing wildly. Um, later, someone should probably check on that guy. Uh, well, he would later be admitted to a psychiatric hospital, so. Okay. Yep. Th- Shit checks out. That, that's all we know about this man. <laughs> This man will never come up in the story ever again, Emily. I want an entire story about this man. That's all you get. Fine. But things, they're just going to keep getting weirder. So three weeks, literally just three weeks after this little girl gets back from Cherbourg, apparently, a cyclist discovered the body of a little girl in a ditch just a half a mile from the from the Picard farm. <sighs> there it is. It was a gruesome find. Um, the body was already badly decomposed. It was missing its hands, feet, and head. What? Um, mm-hmm. Nearby, a set of clothes were found later identified by Marianne Picard as the ones Pauline was wearing the day she disappeared. Um, news reports. <laughs> no, it's not dude- funny. It's not funny, but I just had this image of like her looking at the clothes, being like, well, whose fucking kid do we have then? <laughs> I'm sure that was her reaction. (laughs) News reports do describe the clothes as being neatly folded, which is both an interesting detail. And also like, I always get suspicious when I see things like that. Cause like those are, that's so easy to like misinterpret or misreport or simply mistranslate. Like I, I always go like, when I see things like that. So It, it, it can be like a sign of, you know, like, I mean, it's not an uncommon occurrence with those kinds of crimes. Uh, it's usually like a sign of guilt, as you well know. Yeah. But yeah, like I'm seeing like if it was, it, yeah, I would see like if I see neatly folded clothes at a crime scene, I would immediately assume someone put them there purposefully. But I always yes. like question like, were they actually neatly folded or not? Yes. I would have to see the clothes yeah. in question to be able to like make that determination. I say that like I'm an expert, but. We don't have photos of this crime scene. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, those who participated in the initial search for Pauline insisted that the ditch where she, where the body had been found, had been thoroughly searched multiple times, suggesting again that the body had been placed there at the later date. Um, to make also the scene- not uh, not unheard of. Yeah. To make the scene even stranger, a skull was found nearby that was later Ugh. determined not to be Pauline's, but that of a fully grown man. Yeah, they should probably, like, look into... Uh, th- there's some Twin Peaks shit happening in this town, I think. I have no more details on the skull, but that also makes me think maybe the ditch wasn't searched that well after all. That's that's fair. 
Yeah. And say like, I'm just saying like, also like the hard part about finding lost kids a lot of the time is that they keep moving. So like, it's entirely possible they did like, like search the ditch and then they moved on to somewhere else. And then Pauline wandered into the ditch. Maybe Pauline murdered the man (laughs) and then someone murdered Pauline or Pauline and the big bird were working together. And then the big bird turned on her. I think you're on to something. Mm-hmm. All this to say, I'm not saying it's not murder. I'm just saying it's 1922. And of course, the newspapers are all going to take the more sensational angle in this case. So <laughs> there was an autopsy. There was. Uh, it was inconclusive. So they are missing some crucial <laughs> parts of the body. <laughs> this is true. The head, namely. Yeah. A judge ultimately ruled that the body was indeed that of Pauline Picard. Probably, honestly, I'm almost entirely sure that that determination was on, well, there are no other missing girls in the area, so who else could it be? I think her clothes being identified was probably (gasps) strong. That that is a good point. Um, And her cause of death was determined to be accidental, probably because there's no evidence to suggest anything else. Um, that they know of, but her again, hands and head were missing. Yeah, but those can be scavenged by animals. It's been two months. Her clothes were off. Yeah, but those can come off too by scavengers. I just don't think there's like a coyote out there undressing little girls and then taking their heads off. Weird things happen when like bodies get exposed to like nature. Like that I stuff. Guess. Like, I've read enough like search and rescue stuff to like know that like, that's not unheard of. Just like a pervert fox out there. <laughs> I'm not saying it does. It would like you could conclusively say one way or the other. I'm just saying you can't conclusively say one way or the other. Fair. Yeah. So in June, the girl that had been found in Cherbourg was returned there. <laughs> now Pauline. So they took her back. Um, at the time, she was already speaking full sentences in Breton. Uh, which, of course, prompted at least one paper to declare, maybe she is the real Pauline after all. No one listened to them. She was two. And, <laughs> and she, she lived picked- with a family that spoke that language exclusively. It's called immersion. Yeah, she picked it up real quick. Uh, she was given the name Marie-Louise Pauline and placed in the care of the Franciscan Sisters of Notre Dame de Vaux. Uh, and then she would die just two years later uh, as the victim of a measles epidemic. So I'm sorry, but this one. So there's two, two dead, dead kids children. in this one, and a dead man, and a bird on the run, <laughs> and and a giant bird murderer, a bird murderer. <laughs> okay, uh, give me just a second to go grab a copy oh, of a different yes. stars above. That's right. Thank you. It might shed some light on on you know stuff not being a murder case. Didn't quite occur to me that like I can't cross reference, but I'll look for a second. <laughs> There's not, like, a glossary in the back. Oh, you you don't have, like, the Kindle version? You can't just, like, search dead child? No, I don't have a Kindle, which would make that difficult to have the Kindle version. Um, I have a physical book, like a caveman. Ah, nope, found it. Okay. The number of ways in which their children uh, might come to harm along the trail was staggering, and women who had to drive a team or repair a wagon were unable to devote much time to watching out for them. Children fell under wagon wheels and were crushed to death or crippled for life. They wandered off into the tall grass and were never seen again. Occasionally, they were abducted by Native Americans. Much more frequently, they drowned when swept away by rivers their families were trying to ford. Drowning incidents were so common, in fact, that some mothers wrote their children's names in indelible ink on labels and sewed the labels into their children's clothes. It didn't prevent them from drowning. 
but sometimes it allowed a grieving mother to identify a body that had been in the water too long. Children mm. were bitten by rattlesnakes, struck by lightning, trampled by unruly oxen or horses, pummeled by hailstones as large as turkey eggs, and shot by the nearly daily accidental discharges of the guns that their fathers carried. They died of measles, diphtheria, <sighs> whooping Jesus cough, Christ. influenza, tuberculosis, typhoid fever, malaria, infected cuts, food poisoning, mumps, and smallpox. <laughs> anyway, it was really easy to kill a kid in that time period. Yeah. This is why when people talk about how life expectancy was so short, it wasn't that people lived to like 40 and then keeled over. It was because no, like, it, was so hard to keep everybody, it was so hard to live past like 10 years old. <laughs> the yeah. law of averages just brought it down. <laughs> yeah. People were living to like 70 if they could get past the age of nine. Yeah. It's like if you survived childhood, you, you, you did fine. It was just getting past childhood. <laughs> Woof. Oh, that's grim. Anyway, so like when it's like, oh, she disappeared, she must have gotten kidnapped. No, there's all that shit. Yeah. And like, <laughs> we are barely like we're talking, we're in like the 1910s, 1920s. This is like barely 50 years after covered wagon times. And like rural, very rural. Yeah. Both of these stories have been in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Anyway, well, who's the next child? <laughs> to change it up, we've got one in Los Angeles. Um, oh, is this the one that I think it is? It is. Yes, we have the case of Walter Collins. It is the changeling one. Um, so if you're it's trying to... chicken coop murder, murder one, right? Yes. And if you're still trying to avoid spoilers for the 2008 Angelina Jolie movie, The Changeling, um, maybe go ahead and skip this one or pause and go watch it. I don't know. Um, I actually want to watch it tonight now. <laughs> it's It's pretty good. I've seen it. It's a good movie. Angelina Jolie is one of those people that I have a hard time believing in period pieces. Like, there are certain people like Nicolas Cage and, like, uh, Ron Perlman, where you look at them and you're like, you know what a cell phone is. Yeah, it's, like, it's definitely, like, iPhone face before iPhone face was a thing. Um, yeah, you've been on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she does a good job in that movie. I liked it. So, Walter Collins, uh, then nine years old, disappeared on the afternoon of March 10th, 1928, after his mother had given him a dime to go to the movies at a theater near their Los Angeles home. Oh my god, imagine being able to see a movie in LA for a dime. I think it was probably multiple movies too. The way that like it oh was phrased in the stories, maybe like it wasn't that he was going to see a movie, he was going to the movies. The, well, they usually did the double features. Yeah. I think movies were like shorter too. It wasn't like they were he was going to see like a two and a half hour Marvel movie or something. <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> going to see fucking Killers of the Flower Moon, like <laughs> Uh, the city rallied around Walter's grieving mother, Christine, who was raising Walter on her own while his father, Walter J.S. Collins, uh, was in prison for robbery. That's a ah, all right. That's probably going to have something <sighs> yeah. to do with this. The case received national attention and tips came in from as far north as San Francisco and Oakland. There was one disturbing sighting at a gas station near Glendale uh, who in the person reported seeing Walter dead lying in the backseat of a car wrapped in a newspaper with only his head showing. Uh, the driver <laughs> the driver was described by the station owner who saw him as being, quote, foreign looking and uh, probably Italian. <laughs> this is how we treated tan people back then. <laughs> if you were darker than like a paper bag, you were foreign. <laughs> you were foreign. I mean, we still do that now, but yeah. So despite hundreds of leads and immense public pressure, the Los Angeles Police Department ended the summer no closer to finding Walter than they had been in the spring. Uh, until August, um, a boy claiming to be Walter turned himself into the authorities in DeKalb, Illinois. Illinois? Illinois. 
Another, that's a long ways. The bird is back, Emily. <laughs> Murbird. Murbird? Bird. Birder. It's a bird. Murbird is stupid. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> Christine herself paid the $70 in travel expenses to bring the boy to Los Angeles, which, fuck, that was a lot in the 20s. Um, But a small price to pay for what should have been a happy reunion. Yeah, um, her son, I guess. I guess if it was like, well, I do kind of want my one and only beloved son back. I guess I'll pay seventy dollars. Um, it's just it, I'm, it, I'm not cut out to be a parent. That, like she had to pay it. That's kind of what gave well, who, me. Who was going to pay it? Is that like a know, government the issue? Fucking police? Yeah. Oh, they're not paying for shit. <sighs> well, the police did not come off good in this story. Spoiler alert there. Uh, but so anyway, she pays the 70 bucks. They bring him on a train to Los Angeles. Uh, but when he arrived in California and Christine met with this little boy face to face, she was crestfallen. The boy did resemble Walter, she told the LAPD, uh, but he wasn't her son. Um, this is not the answer the LAPD wanted to hear. Uh, they were very much over the Walter Collins case. They were very much over all the negative publicity they had received over their inability to solve it. Uh, and they were ready to declare it closed, no matter what Christine Collins said. So the officer in charge of the case, J.J. Jones, suggested that she, quote, try the boy out and ultimately convinced her to return home. That's not how children work, sir. I know that. <clears throat> Three weeks later, Christine returned to the police station, this time armed with Walter's dental records, which didn't Oh, I thought you were just going to stop at armed. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I need to see this movie. She's just going to burst in there like fucking Harley Quinn with a beanbag gun. That would be pretty fucking rad. So she she had this kid's dental records, or she had her son's dental records, didn't match. Uh, signed statements from family friends who were like, yeah, this this isn't Walter. This is some random kid you just sent home with her. So you'd think that would be the end of it, but these are cops, uh, and even worse, they're cops in 1920s Los Angeles. Uh, So no, (laughs) Jones instead accused Collins of trying to shirk her duties as a mother, called her a lunatic, and had her committed to the Los Angeles County General Hospital Psychiatric Ward. So we went from, like, trusting women too much in the past (laughs) two stories to being like, no, I'm bored of this case. (laughs) I, I don't want to do my fucking job anymore. We got a kid. We got a lady who needs a kid. Case uh, solved. Someone go pick up the donuts. While this absolutely horrifying abuse of power is happening, Joan finally goes to this kid and he gets the truth out of him. Of course, he isn't Walter. His name is Arthur Hutchins. He's from Iowa. He's 12 years old. He had run away from home following the death of his mother. And he had just been like hitchhiking across the country, working odd jobs again, because he's 12 and it's 1928. He's 12 and working odd jobs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he's at apparently this roadside cafe in DeKalb and someone just kind of like mentions offhandedly to him like, oh, you kind of look like that missing boy from Los Angeles. And figuring he could probably get a free trip to Hollywood out of the deal uh, if he later admits to being Walter after being picked up by the local police for it's being a, a 12-year-old scam? boy. <laughs> Honestly, respect to this kid. This is a good con. I, I'm not sure it's a good con. I mean, this poor woman went to a mental asylum. <laughs> I mean, that's not his fault. That's well, the police's fault. I Let's yeah. not put that on the kid. Do you think that, like, Christina and, and Walter... Like going- Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. Do you think Christina and Walter were just, like, sitting at dinner and, like, they both know that, like, yeah. he's not right? And they're just, like... Not even imagine the awkward energy in that house. 
And like, that's the like, thing. Like, I cannot imagine like he thought he was going to go to California and like this woman was going to see him and like take him in. I'm sure he thought he was going to go there. She was going to go. It happened before twice. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't read the news. He's not going to go. I'm sure he thought like she's going to say, no, this isn't it. And like, they're going to be like, okay, scram kid. <laughs> and he's just like, cool. I'm in California now. And now he's in California. I'm sure he thought that's what was going to happen. He's 12. He doesn't have critical thinking skills yet. No, that's fair. It's so awkward. It's like, you know, this is bullshit, right? Oh, yeah. yeah no, totally. I thought they were going to tap out after the first, like, five minutes. But, like, here we are. Great chicken, Christine. Great work. <laughs> Just absolutely bonkers. I'm 12. <laughs> so, with the truth finally out, Christine was finally released after 10 days in the hospital, which... God. Like, this is, like, a 1920s psychiatric ward it is not a nice place to be i can't imagine that was pleasant yeah it's kind of like that guy <sighs> spending two years in jail in the 20s like yeah. no one's coming out of this better she filed a lawsuit against jones and the lapd and was rightly awarded <laughs> ten thousand eight hundred dollars which is about the equivalent to like two hundred thousand dollars today <laughs> but jones I claimed to be broke and never actually paid her back this is just infuriating very rarely um, do you hear about someone criminally gaslighting someone. Yeah. I do love that. Like, so he claims she wins this lawsuit. He claims he's broke. He doesn't have the money to actually pay her. But she's mm. like, you know, fuck you. Uh, so every couple of years, she just takes him back to court again and like has more interest tacked on, which is at Good. least a principled victory. She never actually got any money out of him, which does legitimately suck. But at least she like never let him forget it. <laughs> never let him off the oh, hook for it. Oh, I love that she spent all that time making herself an inconvenience for yeah, this man. Just like continually, yes, continue to be a thorn in this man's side, Christine. I wouldn't even but, care about the money at that point. It's just no. like, I want to be as annoying as possible. <laughs> I And if I had to guess, I don't think she did either. Like, usually it's not about the money. It's about like, just the validation, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. So as for Paul, poor Walter, again, unlikely we'll ever know his true fate. Most do believe he was a victim of Gordon Stewart Northcott, who would be sentenced to death in 1929 for abducti ab abducting, molesting, and murdering three young boys in what came to be known as the Wineville Chicken Coop murders. And it's believed he may have murdered up to 11. So I'm we'll just cover adding that at some to point. the Yeah, I'm just adding to the dead children body count in this episode. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I don't get into it a whole lot. We Yeah, again, we can cover it in more detail probably in a later episode. Um, I don't know how much I love a good old timey murder. Yeah. I mean, I don't the, love that it happens. <laughs> no, you love the concept. Yeah. No, no. I don't even. <laughs> I am interested in the details of historical events in which murder was an element yes that's what we all tell ourselves it's really hard to be interested in the things i'm interested in sometimes yes so northcott's mother who initially confessed to her participation in the crimes did list walter collins as being among her son's victims but she later rescinded that confession and gave a number of inconsistent statements about the crimes northcott himself denied it walter's body was never found there's really no hard evidence that there's a connection there um but of course that's not where our story ends on the eve of Northcott's execution in October 1930, he sends a telegram to Christine Collins claiming he lied, actually, when he denied killing her son and promised he'd tell her the truth as long as she came in person to hear it. So Christine, always in search of the truth, makes a journey to San Quentin, only to be turned away by Northcott when she arrived, again, claiming his innocence. This poor fucking woman, Leave I swear to God. This woman alone. This, I, this episode, honestly, is just... 
if you take one theme away from this episode, it is mothers just doing their best. Well, I don't know. That one lady from the Bobby Dunbar story didn't seem to have a pretty, like, a good <laughs> grasp on what her own son looked like. Again, mother's doing their best. I'm not saying mother's doing a good job. I'm saying mother's doing their best. <laughs> Maybe this lady's best was just not very good. So Christine, though, she never gave up the search for Walter. Five years after North- Northcott's execution, one of the other boys he had been accused of killing did turn up alive and well. So that gave her enough hope to fuel her the rest of her life, though she never did get any answers. She died in December 1964 at the age of 75. Damn, girl. So that's another 70 or that's another sad ending to a sad story. Well, no, 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 no. Cause then we, we brought in a live child that we thought was dead. So that kind of brings the countdown by one. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I've really bummed myself out with these last couple stories. I'm sure I'm bumming everybody else out again. Like we're up to over a dozen dead children. Um, I'm I glad promise, you were keeping count. Yeah. I promise we are going to end on a relatively happy note. So. Is it a, a, a regularly identified child? Or are you just going to tell us the Elizabeth Smart story? Our last case is that of little baby Paul Franzak, who was born on April 26th, 1964, to Dora and Chester Franzak of Chicago, Illinois. I'm going to go ahead and say 1964 is too late for any of the shenanigans that I'm sure are about to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'd be correct. Uh, The following morning, a woman dressed as a nurse entered the room and told Dora that a doctor wanted to examine Paul. Dora, not thinking anything of it, handed her baby over. The woman left the hospital with Paul and was never seen again. The the nurse (laughs) took the baby? Mm Mm-hmm. She wasn't a nurse. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm gathering that now. Yeah. It was just a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't say, like, cases like this were common, but, like, things like that definitely happened much more often back in the day. And, like, this is the reason newborn units at hospitals have, like, Area 51 level security now. I don't know if you've ever visited You say back in the day, like, it wasn't 1964. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we also didn't have seatbelts in cars until, like, the 90s, so. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So. She just walked in, like, did she steal, like, a nurse outfit? Like, I think she just probably picked one up at a store and just like, yeah, I'm a nurse. I'm here to take the baby. And then she just walked out. Yeah. Like nowadays they have like little bracelets and like alarms on every door. And like they put like the anti-shoplifting tags on the babies. Oh, oh, yeah. They like low jack all the babies. (laughs) It's insane. Like there's there's the dye packs. Um, No, I am picturing just Daryl Hannah in Kill Bill. Um, (laughs) Eye patch and everything. (laughs) Yep. That's exactly it. She also just walked into a hospital and no one questioned it. Mm-hmm. Again, 1964. This was also like, <laughs> this was pre-DB Cooper. Remember when people could just like get on planes? I mean, people could just plane. get on planes for a while past DB Cooper. Yeah, um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, there's a story from the 70s about a guy who just like, uh, there was like a run of people just hijacking planes for a flight mm-hmm. to C- Cuba because like we weren't doing that. Oh, yeah. You could just take a plane until, like, 1995. It is surprisingly recently that we only started taking security, quote-unquote, seriously. And I say, quote-unquote, seriously with, like, I'm doing the air quotes because, like, obviously most of TSA is, like, security theater. That's a whole other... Well, (laughs) Um, I told you about... Because, like, you know that TSA, like, stresses me out, especially, like, Mm -hmm. the liquids thing. I can't explain why. Um, So I, like, pack everything perfectly. And I was going to Las Vegas with my mom. And we're in the line for TSA. And I was like, you know, remember when you get out, you'll have to take the plastic bag with your toiletries uh, out of your your carry-on and and all of that. And she's like, 
what? Like you take the the bag with your toiletries and you put it in the in the bin. Yeah. She's like, my toiletries are all just packed in my suitcase. Like she had a carry on suitcase. I'm like, they're what? Yeah, they're just in my toiletries bag. So I'm like, great, we're gonna get stopped. We're gonna miss her flight. Like, just immediately, like, oh, trip's ruined. <laughs> um, she didn't take shit out of shit, and they just <laughs> let her through. Yeah, this is when I'm like I said, security theater. Um, I won't I won't name names, obviously, but I have a friend who um apparently after their grandpa died, they all she and all her cousins got like pocket knives because that was the thing you'd always carry a pocket knife because they were useful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh and she went That's to cute. visit a friend. And when she arrived to visit a friend, realized she'd had her pocket knife in her purse and no one had ever caught it. <laughs> Just walked straight on through TSA with a whole ass pocket knife. Oh yeah, TSA let me through with pepper spray once, and then I, um, because it was just on my keychain, and I didn't think about it. Uh, and then I went to Universal Studios on that trip, and they made me throw the pepper spray away. <laughs> Safe flying, everybody. Anyway, <laughs> stuff was looser back in the <laughs> back in now. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so this is a total nightmare. Just like imagine that you've literally just given birth. Less than a day ago, and some lady just walks out of the hospital with your baby. I just finished that. Yeah. I just made this. <laughs> so obviously, Paul's disappearance launches this huge manhunt. Biggest in Chicago history, like 200 police officers, the FBI gets involved. They conscripted 175,000 postal workers. I don't have details. Postal workers. I imagine they were just like, they told all the postal workers in the city, like, knock on when you are doing your routes, like, look for babies. I don't know what that means. Our mailman can't even put my packages under the right name. (laughs) Like, you think these guys are going to find a baby? Uh, By midnight, they had searched 600 homes, but Paul was not in a single one of them. So as the weeks went on, the investigation dwindled, the publicity faded, and Dora and Chester just had to return home without their baby, which is just heartbreaking to think about um they wouldn't know anything for two years when in march 1966 they received a letter just a letter insane to me just like yeah write her a letter from the fbi stating that oh my a toddler God. matching paul's description had been found in newark new jersey no no the no bird- a toddler does not have the same description as a baby sarah there are it- huge differences newborns all look like winston churchill toddlers actually have differences the bird is added again <laughs> Yeah, did you say Illinois? Uh, Newark, New Jersey. Okay. Yeah, they, so like, oh yeah, they had been a- in Chicago. The boy was found in Newark. Okay. It was two years later. Like, the appropriate amount of time had passed, to their credit. But yeah, it was a toddler. They're trying to compare him to a newborn. This is going to be difficult. He um, was wearing the same stocking cap. <laughs> uh, the boy had actually been found the year before, abandoned in a pushchair in a busy shopping center. When no one came forward to claim the toddler, he had been given the name Scott McKinley and taken in by a local couple while authorities continued to investigate. Can you imagine looking at a one-year-old and thinking, yep, Scott's a good name? Yeah, Scott. Uh, the <laughs> boy came was- with a set of golf clubs. <laughs> imagine naming a newborn Scott. This, that, that's what gets me. <laughs> I know when you name a baby, you're supposed to be naming an adult. But like, still, like, it's just really difficult to look at a baby and be like, yeah, Richard. Richard. <laughs> I'm glad we thought of the exact same name there. Uh, so the boy was compared to missing children nationwide, but nothing really seemed like a match. Like the details didn't match up. Obviously not the descriptions. Because again, newborns to toddlers. Um, but one police detective had a hunch that the boy could be maybe the missing baby from Chicago. But again. They don't have a lot to go on. Paul had been so young. They didn't have. Uh, so young as in fresh as in. 
As in, they hadn't taken his fingerprints, they hadn't done footprints, uh, they hadn't recorded his blood type yet. Literally, this is insane to me. Literally, all they had to go off of was the shape of Paul's ear in the like one photo that they had taken of him. Because again, 1964, no iPhones. Um, and they were like, well, that's similar to this boy's ear. <laughs> so it wasn't conclusive. They recognized that like, this is not like evidence that this is this kid. But they, also, it's like, well, we can't rule out that this isn't this kid. So let's it's gotta go somewhere. <laughs> let's go reach out to the Franzaks. Let's get them involved and see like maybe maybe we can get their opinion on it. I don't know. So in June, the Franzaks drive out to New Jersey. They meet this boy. And in the end, it seems like it was just left up to Dora to decide, like, is this your baby or not? Like, never mind. Y'all want this or? Yeah. It had only been two years that she'd had less than a day to spend with her son before he was taken. Like, so she just says, like, yeah, I think that's Paul, she told them. And I don't want to say that was that because it wasn't quite that. Like, legally speaking, they had to adopt him. Like, there was no actual proof that he was their son. So they had to go through legal channels to take him back. They didn't just hand this kid over. <laughs> um, well, we had done it before. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it also doesn't seem like anyone put up much resistance. Like, he had had, like, a foster family he'd been staying with. And they wanted to adopt him. Or they'd been preparing to adopt him. And oh, my God. I guess they just, they're like, well, no, these people do. So, sorry. Um <laughs> This, and again, this is just me wildly speculating, but I feel like everyone involved, other than obviously this foster other foster family, they probably wanted the baby to be Paul because that's such a good story, and they didn't want to press too hard on it. So, um, and then I obviously, mean, it's not like they knew him. So, yeah. And like again, this is way before DNA testing is an option. It is wild to me that they didn't at least do some kind of blood test or something. It feels like that would at least be a possibility. I mean. There have been cases where families all have a different blood type, so I don't know if it would necessarily prove anything. Yeah, I would say I would say at the very least you could like maybe rule out, but again, like that's such a yeah, like there are so many. Well, um, in the this is going to be a weird pull, but the Jeffrey McDonald case, um, are you familiar with that one? Mm, it's not ringing a bell. Uh, it's that that doctor that that killed his entire family. Oh, yep, no, I get it, and, and then tried to blame it on hippies. Oh, yep, yeah, yeah um, yes. Every member of that family had a different blood type, so they could determine what happened based on the blood type of, like, the, oh, the puddling. So, like, uh, two daughters and their mother, all different blood types, different blood type from uh, Jeffrey as well. So, yeah, so the only thing I could think of is, like, if he has a blood type that, like, because I know, like, there is some kind of logic, like, certain blood types, like, if your parents have, like, two different blood types, maybe you can only have, like, a couple different and you wouldn't be able to have, like, this one blood type. So maybe they could have like I'm possibly sure. ruled him out. Again, I don't remember all exactly how blood types were. Yeah, yeah. I was like, like but like that's I've, still, I've literally like, never known my blood type. No, I couldn't tell you what mine is either. Probably should know that. But yeah. But I mean, that's just how it is. Paul grew up in Oakland, Illinois. Just normal kid, completely unaware that he'd ever gone missing at all. Um, then at 10 years old, he was snooping for Christmas gifts, Christmas gifts. I thought you were going to say he was kidnapped. <laughs> he was kidnapped again. No, he was snooping for Christmas gifts as 10 year old boys are want to do. Uh, when he discovered a box of old newspaper clippings all about his kidnapping, which just must be oh wild. my God. Uh, and then later the happy ending, of course, of how he had been found again in New Jersey. Cause of course that brought the story up again. Uh, so he ran upstairs to show his mother and she admitted, yes, you were kidnapped. We found you. We love you. That's all you need to know. Um, but Fair. she seemed a little annoyed, maybe a little irritated that he had asked. 
Um, probably annoyed that he was snooping for Christmas presents. Probably some of that too. So Paul, he kind of like got the impression that maybe she didn't want to talk about it. He avoided bringing that up again. Um, (laughs) but he did wonder about it. Um, so while by all accounts, he had a happy childhood, he said he did always kind of feel like a bit of an outsider in his own family. He didn't really look like his parents or his brother. He was loud and brash. They were quiet and reserved. Um, there's a quote from him from one of these articles. It's like, I actually thought, what are the chances of me being this one baby taken from Chicago? I was found so far away. It just seems so unfathomable. Which, yeah, good point, Paul. <laughs> My The thing that is sticking for me is this woman went to the trouble of taking a baby and then just left him in a shopping center in Newark. Look, we'll get into it. Oh, there's more. Okay. Oh, yeah. We're, oh, we're not done. We are not done. This I figured since he was an adult, like this story goes some places, Emily. Just wait. Oh God. <laughs> in 2012, during a visit from his parents, um, Paul finally mustered the courage to ask them about a DNA test. He wanted to know the truth, but he was wary of hurting them. Um, but when asked, Dora and Chester admitted that they too had always kind of wondered. Um, and so the three of them took cheap cheek swabs using an over-the-counter DNA test. Um, but by the Paul, by the time Paul's parents had returned to Chicago, they changed their mind. I think they probably overthought it. And they like, you know, they called him. They were like, you know what? You're a son. No matter what, please don't send off the DNA cut. You know, we don't want to go down that road. We don't want to open that can of worms. So Emily Paul wants to. <laughs> so Paul didn't at, at first, but it really weighed on him. He really struggled for a couple of weeks. And finally, he just like, he couldn't take it anymore. He, he went against the wishes of his parents and he sent it in. I mean, it's his right. Yeah. And I totally get that. Honestly, I would, I would be in Paul. I would do the same. Um, and the results confirmed what he was suspected. What he suspected, he was not Dora and Chester's biological child. Yeah. So, yeah. So initially, Franz acts furious. Um, both with Paul's decision and again, also the immediate, the media attention that came from it. Um, How did they get media attention? Like he didn't have to tell anybody. Um, I don't know. I think I, I can't remember exactly how it worked out, but it, it did end up getting publicized. Um, they didn't speak with him for over a year, but they, they did make peace. They were on good terms. So that it did all get worked out. They, um, they, his parents have both since passed. I think his mother actually in like 2021. So very recently. Um, but for the last few years of her life, they were all on very good terms. I don't know why they're mad at him. Well, I mean, I, I think, think it was just like going against his wishes. And like, I think there's, I think there's a bit of like, you would feel a little rejected, wouldn't you? No. Like you raised this kid as your own. And he's like, I mean, he never, he never said any, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't present, but it doesn't sound like he was like, you know, yo, you're not my parents. Like, it's basically the same as being adopted. It's just weirder. Yeah, but I think even then there's still that like element of even if it's like, you know, it's not intentional of like he. It sounds like they might be kind of upset that they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that could be part of it, too. I mean, a lot of it is like even if you like know it isn't logical, you still feel that way. You know, yeah. sometimes you just can't. No, help I mean, that. yeah. Yeah. So just seems like they were punishing him for <laughs> yeah doing something that was normal. Um, Dora specifically has spoken with him about what it was like to like be back in that room in New Jersey and like looking at this child who may or may not be yours <laughs> and feeling like the whole world is watching you. And he said she could either say, I'm not sure and put this child back into the system or say, yes, that's my son. And even if it was not save this child from what she could be, what from what could be a horrible life. She did what she thought was right. And I'm glad she did. Yeah, they had the setup. It's kind of like you, when you buy a coffee maker and then you get it home and it doesn't work and you go get another one. It's like, 
Same thing. Yeah. It's a fresh baby. Uh, so while the DNA test had answered one of Paul's questions, uh, it, it, lo- it left a lot more. <laughs> Opened a lot of doors. Um, for one, if he wasn't Paul Franzak, uh, Paul Franzak uh, who the hell was he? How the fuck did I end up in a mall in Newark? <laughs> the bird, Emily. Uh, <laughs> the lady was actually a bird in a lady costume. Yep. It was a bird in his Daryl Hannah mm-hmm. in Kill Bill costume. Took the baby. Uh, a team of volunteers called DNA Detectives led by celebrity genetic genealogist C.C. Moore took on the case. Uh, and as their investigation narrowed down Paul's potential relatives, they made a breakthrough when one of them mentioned that there was a pair of missing twins in the family. Not just a missing boy, missing twins. So in 2015, Paul Franzak was officially identified as Jack Rosenthal of Atlantic City, New Jersey. He and his twin sister, Jill, and yes, they were named Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill, yes. Yes. Uh, They had been born into rough circumstances. So their mother, Marie, struggled with drinking, and their father, Gilbert, was said to have returned from the war in Korea as, quote, an angry man. So... Yeah, I can see how. Yep. Not... Not great. Uh, according to family members, Jack and Jill had been badly abused and often neglected, left in the crib for, cribs for hours. Just, it, I won't go into details. It's some really grim shit. Um, at some yeah, point, yeah, yeah. Gilbert and Marie began making excuses for why the twins were no longer around. And then they just never showed they up They went again. to college. Yep. So while Jack was later found abandoned in that mall, or not a mall, shopping center, I guess, and adopted as Paul... Um, we still don't know what happened to Jill. Um, Paul suspects that she may have been killed and that his parents dumped him at the shopping center because it was easier to explain two missing twins than it was just one. Um, so there is an ongoing investigation into Jill's disappearance. I wasn't able to find any recent updates. Um, but I'm not going to end the story on that. (laughs) I am going to end the story on something happy or at least something bittersweet. Uh, and this is the part of the episode where I just started openly weeping as I was writing it. And now I might start crying again. <laughs> this better not be another dead baby. No dead babies. Um, in 2019, investigators were able to identify a Michigan man named Kevin Ray Beatty as the real baby Paul Franzak. Oh, uh, Yeah, they found him. Uh, and it was his own children, actually. They suspected he could be the missing child and a relative provided a DNA sample for testing. <laughs> Wildly, he spent the first 10 years of his life living in Chicago. <laughs> he was in With the same city Hannah. that whole time. And the bird. <laughs> Um, there's some, there's still some mystery as to who kidnapped him and why, like we know the woman who raised him, but she passed away several years ago. And since she hasn't officially been named a suspect, like, I'm not going to call her out here. Like there's a kidnapping case that's officially still open. Maybe we'll learn more someday. I don't know. It is, uh, uh, there is a subplot in the book choke by Chuck Palahniuk about, I'm going to call her Angelica Houston because she played her in the movie, but (laughs) she kidnapped Sam Rockwell as a baby and just raised him as her own. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm going to say there's precedent for it. It's a fictional fucking book, but like, I'm sure it's happened. I would say it's likely that even he was kidnapped to be raised by the woman who kidnapped him. It's also possible he was kidnapped and given to another woman. Like, that's not out of sold either. Yeah. Like, nah, there were like illegal adoption rings and shit like that. Like, it's not out of the question. Like, that's a possibility. I, I would lean that it was probably the former, but I'm, I don't know. I can't say I don't have any of the details. So I'm not going to. I mean, it sounds like it was just a lady uh, who was a little off a rocker who yeah. stole a baby and then raised it. Yeah. That's probably likely, but, um, damn. Well, 
So the sad, the bittersweet part of this is the sad part of it is Kevin passed away from cancer in April 2020. And it was only on his death that his identity was revealed to the public. Um, he had been making plans to meet with Dora. Oh, shit. I just got to get it out. Okay. <sighs> just imagine the podcast in its underwear. <laughs> I would imagine that fucking bird. <laughs> <laughs> Are you picturing like a big eagle or like big bird with an eye patch? Like a big eagle. It's got to be like a real Okay, because that's okay. also what I was picturing. Okay, that should help. So, well, he had been making plans to meet with Dora. He was too sick to travel at the time. And unfortunately, they were never able to make it happen. Um, but she did have a chance to speak with him by phone and ask her son what kind of life he had. And now I'm crying again. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story of Paul Franzak. So I really like that story. I'm like openly weeping, but like because I love that story so much. They got to talk. That's good. Yeah. That's good. It's really sweet. Um, man, I mean, they managed to... I'm glad his kids were paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to know what kind of, like, tipped them off. Like, I'm sure he probably yeah, was had like, a weird childhood. Yeah, like... And I'm sure there were, like, some suspicious things, like, Dad, where, what what was the deal with, with Grandma? I don't know. But... but yeah, you just kind of look at your dad and be like, you look like you could have been kidnapped as a yeah. newborn. <laughs> Have you thought about getting that checked out? <sighs> yeah. So those are misidentified children. And she got two sons. She got double the sons. That's kind of nice. And, yeah. I mean, he didn't have to grow up with what sounded like a very shitty family. Yeah. Honestly, he lucked out. Woof. So that that worked out for him. Um, man, I hope they figure out what happened to the girl. <sighs> yeah, I hope he gets some answers on that. I mean, I think we know what happened, but... Yeah, it's just the logic of two missing kids. It's easier to explain than one missing kid. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty grim to think about, but I think that's They're not like a salt and pepper shaker set. Like you can just lose one. Say, yeah. like, oh, Jill? Yeah, she went to college. Went to college. Uh, super <laughs> smart kid. Yeah. Turns out she's a genius. Oh, if only that Infant, were the case. But yeah, she's at UCLA studying yeah. film. So no child prodigy is going to go study film. Uh, we'd hope. It's just the first major that came to mind. It's like, yes, let's give it my major. <laughs> she went mm. to become a director and and grew up to be fucking Greta Gerwig. <laughs> that, you know what? I'm going to choose to believe that version of the story because that makes me feel better. I mean, she is a little, uh, Greta Gerwig's a little young. A little young. That, so maybe. she, maybe she grew up to be, oh no, she grew up to be Kathleen Kennedy, producer of the Marvel movies. I was going to say, maybe she's immortal, but yours is probably a little more realistic. <laughs> I, I am pretty sure that, that Greta Gerwig is some kind of supernatural being. That, that tracks. <laughs> I love her so much. Man, I'm glad we, we ended with an alive child. Mm -hmm. We kind of needed that. Yeah. A lot of sad stories in this one, but. Technically, that the Wineville chicken coop thing. I mean, it, that did end with you know one of the kids we thought was one murdered of the kids came back. Wasn't. Yeah, yeah. I think he just and came back with like I think that a, a McDonald's bag. Like, why is everyone freaking out? I just, <laughs> just I went for lunch. Yeah, I think that's kind of why I like these stories so much. Is that like obviously there's obviously there's tragedy involved and there's so much of that, but there's always like a silver lining in it. There's always some, well, not always I mean, in the case of poor Pauline Picard. Um, but there's usually like someone got a happy life out of the deal. I just, why did they give her back? I think like the authorities 
essentially took her back. They're like, well, she's not your kid. But they just gave her to some nuns. Like, I, she already, she had learned the language. She had a place. Like, I don't understand why they would take her back. I don't know. It's not Again, like there like, was another family. It's just one of those cases where, like, we don't get any of those details. I would love to know that, too. Because, like, I would love to know, like, did the family, like, want to keep her? Like, I can't imagine, like, taking in a two-year-old child, thinking she's your daughter, and then even if, like, knowing she's not, like, learning later that she wouldn't be, like, I I don't, I personally don't know if I could give her away again. (laughs) Like, I would struggle with that. And maybe this mother did, too. I don't know. Maybe it was also, maybe it was too painful to keep her after learning your own daughter was dead. Like, I don't know. Literally dead in a ditch. Yeah. You never know. People are complicated and feelings are really complicated and life is hard. It's weird, man. Yeah. Well, Jesus. On that note. I'd say that we'll be back next week with something more uplifting, but I can say with 100% certainty that that is not true. No, I I don't know what I... I can't explain what next week is, but it certainly is a celebration of... Of love. Yes. <laughs> it's a celebration of something. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, if you were a misidentified child, if you know where Bobby Dunbar is... <laughs> if you're Bobby Dunbar... If you are Bobby Dunbar and you got eaten by an alligator... Uh, you can find us on Instagram at Afternoonified or uh, email us at uh, AfternoonifiedPod at gmail.com. We also have uh, GetAfternoonified.com where you can find past episodes. You can find links to merch. Um, we have some very, very good merch right now. Just lots of good merch. I say this because I own two of the newer pieces of our merch and I love them dearly. Um Let's see. Remember to rate, subscribe, review, all of that fun stuff. And like I said, we'll be back next week for something. (laughs) We love you. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This is... As above, so below.